With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome to today's Commonwealth Club program. My name is Alison Van Diggelen. I'm a BBC contributor, host of Fresh Dialogues, and I will be your moderator today. As the club continues to host virtual events, we're grateful for the support of members and donors. Please visit commonwealthclub.org to learn more about our membership or support the club with tax-deductible gifts by clicking on the blue Donate button. If you have questions for today's guest, please submit them in the chat. Now it's my pleasure to welcome Eric Berger, Senior Space Editor at Ars Technica and author of the new book, Liftoff, Elon Musk and the Desperate Early Days That Launched SpaceX. Eric is very well qualified to write this book. He has an astronomy degree from the University of Texas and a master's degree in journalism from the University of Missouri. He's a certified meteorologist and spent 17 years writing for the Houston Chronicle. Eric, a very warm welcome to you. So you've had an insider's look at the dramatic disasters and desperate early days of SpaceX. Today, I'd like to focus on three main areas. First, strategy. Exactly how Elon Musk and his team succeeded in toppling the establishment and revolutionizing the space exploration. And secondly, the drama and the milestones. What vital team members like Tom Muller, Gwyn Shotwell, and others contributed and sacrificed to help make it happen. And thirdly, I'd like to focus on the lessons for any ambitious entrepreneur out there. Okay, so Eric, let's start. I'd like to explore Elon Musk's motivations. You write in your book, something inside Musk drives him to relentlessly want to build a city on Mars. In your many interviews with Elon, did you get closer to identifying exactly what drives him? You know, I think there's this this sense that he has that humanity's destiny lies among the stars. Literally, humans need to settle planets around other stars that are like Earth. And I think he's probably had that within him for a long time. He'd hoped that NASA would be working toward that goal. Um, But a couple of decades ago, he realized that the space agency wasn't headed in that direction. And so he feels impelled to try to make that a reality. And, you know, there are no other planets like Earth in our solar system. There is but one. Um, and there are no other places that are particularly habitable. When you look around, Mars offers just about the best spot. Um, you know, we don't have the capacity in any sense to, to send spacecraft, let alone humans, to other stars. They're just too far away for us right now with our current technologies. Um, so if we're going to take the first tentative steps off this planet to ultimately settling other worlds, he figured that Mars is the best place to start. So that's really where he's been focused for the last 20 years. And what's his timeline for that, Eric? <laughs> well, it's always changing and it's always too optimistic. Um, you know, he's talked about potentially sending human missions to Mars by 2024, 2026. And that strikes me as, as way optimistic. Um, but, you know, if he were able to launch his Starship vehicle with people on it by 2030, um, that would be an enormous achievement. You know, I, I spent much of my career tracking NASA and its human exploration programs. And, you know, it's difficult for me to see a pathway for NASA to send two or four astronauts to Mars in my lifetime. Like, that's just about the extent of the achievements that we could expect from them. You know, and, and Musk is talking about sending dozens of humans to Mars at a time and doing it much, much more quickly than NASA. So he may say 2024, 2026. I would say 2030 would be moving heaven and earth to make that happen. Right. Yeah. People talk about um, Elon time. 
So he's always wildly optimistic. Okay, so let's dive in and explore some details of your book, um, how they succeeded when so many other companies failed. So first, Musk assembled a stellar team, and your book gives wonderful details about his interview technique and um, revealing details that I didn't know that he actually personally interviewed the first 3,000 employees at SpaceX, which is remarkable. Can you describe a typical interview and the lengths that Musk will go to to secure key members for his team? Yeah, I'll I'll tell you a couple anecdotes to to kind of flesh that out. I think, first of all, one of the secrets of SpaceX's success is the fact that, that Musk worked so hard to identify and then hire people he thought who could you know, help him accomplish that goal. So these are young people generally, very smart, very motivated and willing to go to the mat you know, for Musk and, and SpaceX. Um, so one of the, one of the stories I, I liked was told to me by Bülin Altan, who was a Turkish, an engineer from Turkey, um, who was in graduate school at Stanford University and his wife worked for Google. And Bülin, didn't really like the idea of, of moving down to Los Angeles because he thought the Bay Area was nicer. His wife already had a good job up there and he was still finishing up graduate school. He had some friends at SpaceX and they invited him to come down. And of course, he ended up in an interview room with Musk. And Musk had prepared. He'd heard from one of Bulin's friends that, you know, that he had his wife's job up in the Bay Area and, and so forth. And so during the interview, Musk just straightforward to Bulin says, I heard your wife works at Google and you can't move down here to LA because of that. So I called Larry and he said, you know, she can work from Los Angeles if she wants to. <laughs> so he had, he had just nonchalantly called Larry Page, co-founder of Google and said, Hey, you know, I want to hire this guy and there's a family issue. Can we work it out? And Bulin all time ends up at SpaceX and plays a pivotal role in the success of the Falcon 1, the Falcon 9 and the Starlink program. Now he left in uh, he left in 2015, um, the company. But it's a super interesting guy. And you know another one was told to me by an engineer named Brian Beldy, who ended up as head of human resources for SpaceX. But this was back in 2003, the summer of 2003. And Beldy comes in for an interview, and and Musk, who is not one for small talk, you know, he does not like to waste time. And so pretty much his first question out the gate to Beldy was do you dye your hair? Um, And he had noticed a disparity in the hair color between Belly's eyebrows and his hair and apparently (laughs) just ceased upon him to ask that particular question. Um, But he has a a unique interviewing style, very direct, wants to find out if people can think, not what they know, um, and, and, and likes to throw people off kilter to see how they react when things don't go well. Um, he can be pretty intimidating and, and he'll do things like, you know, why is your hair color funny or your eyebrows or whatever, just to see how people will react. And that's part of the way he, he sees how they're going to survive in this really, you know, demanding environment that he created at SpaceX. Right. Uh, good to have friends in high places, eh? So another another theme of the early part of your book is how hard, actually all the way through, is how hard the team worked. Some people joke that SpaceX years are like dog years. You get seven years in one. And uh, one example of that that you pulled out was schedules were prominently displayed above urinals in the bathroom. Can you give us other examples of just how hard you were expected to work and how you were driven? Yeah, I mean, it was the kind of thing in those first years where you were expected to, you know, when when, it, when it, the schedule called for it, to work all night and, and not think anything of it. Um, they just he hired generally people in their early twenties who were fresh out of college or just in grad school. And, you know, they didn't have wives or spouses or husbands. They didn't have that kind of family attachments. You know, they they rented apartments. They didn't live in homes. And so their, their whole life basically became, you know, working at SpaceX, you know, Flo Lee told me a story. She was an engineer who hired in 2003 she worked on the structure of the Falcon 1 rocket. She was at Stanford um, as well and decided to come down to, to SpaceX. And she said she left all her friends in Stanford 
you know, even cried as she was driving from the Bay Area down to Los Angeles because she thought about sort of everything she was giving up to come work at this this unknown company. And she told me that, you know, a few weeks after working at SpaceX, she realized it didn't really matter that she didn't have any friends there because she had no time to spend with them. And like her social world became the company. And she just decided that for several years of her life, it was okay to give literally everything she had. That's all she wanted to do. Now, I'm not how health, I'm not sure how healthy that is, certainly long-term for, for people in, as a working environment, but it was the expectation that if you come work at SpaceX, you're going to work really hard, but you're also going to get a chance to accomplish super meaningful things. Yes. And one, one aspect of that you pulled out, um, SpaceX obviously pioneered reusable rockets, reusable parts, and um, Elon Musk incentivized his team to bring things in-house so they weren't relying on outside um, suppliers. How do, Can you explain how he did this? I understand over 80% of SpaceX launch hardware is now built in-house um, is that uh, is that figure still accurate? And how did he incentivize team members to come up with efficient ways of doing things in-house and cost-cutting? So first of all, you know, I'd like to step back and, and, you know, help people understand what the aerospace industry was like in 2002 when he started SpaceX. If you wanted to do it the way it had always been done and started a company, you know, you would come in and say, okay, we want to build a rocket such and such a size to lift this amount of payload to low Earth orbit. And then you would go out in the industry and find out, okay, Aerojet makes the right sized engine for this. Draper has the right software for this. Lockheed can build the right payload fairing for this. Boeing can build the tanks. And you would go around and look at all the aerospace suppliers and figure out who had the best product. And then you would pay them for that product. And it ended up, the, your, your rocket ended up being extraordinarily expensive would probably work, but it costs $60 million or $100 million to launch. You know, he wanted the Falcon 1 to cost $6 million per launch for customers. So this was really an order of magnitude. He was trying to drop the expense of getting into space. Um, and so one of the ways he incentivized it was, you know, early employees got a healthy chunk of stock. And so if they saved the company money, um, they saved their own money. And, you know, that was... That was not an unusual incentive, I think, in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley startups, but it certainly was in the space industry. Um, and so that was one of the ways that sort of he helped them become a vertically integrated company. It just became part of the ethos. You know, the last thing he would want to hear from an employee is that's the way it always been done. You know, he would teach them and beat it into their heads that, no, there are probably better ways to do this. We should find them. And always look for the cheapest, fastest solution, um, and that's that's ultimately what they did. And uh, he also used carrots and sticks. Uh, you write in a single meeting, Musk could be hilarious, deadly serious, hard, reflective, and a stickler for the finest details of rocket science. But most of all, he just wants to move things forward and get shit done. Um, you also write about Musk's anger. Can you share how he uses it to motivate himself and his team? Yeah, so he can get very frustrated um, when things don't go right, right? When, when, when rockets blow up, he's not happy. But what, what really gets under his skin is, is things like trading a, a little bit of performance. So what I mean by that is, you know, when you're building a rocket, you have an engine that has a certain amount of thrust and it has a certain fuel efficiency and your rocket has a certain mass. And the heavier your rocket is, the less payload it can get to orbit. And the less payload it can get to orbit, the less useful it is, the fewer customers you can have and the less money it can generate. So you want a light rocket and you want a high performing engine. Um, and the trouble is when you get to the actual engineering of, of building a rocket, you find yourself having to make trade-offs. Um, like you need a little bit more thickness in the tank walls because you're concerned about this problem, or you need to take a little bit of performance from the engine so that you don't violate a pressure margin. Or, you know, you just sort of find yourself making these trade-offs. And, and he would just fight that so hard. 
and would get would get angry. Um, you know, another example of this is, is that you know it, he he always wanted you know as we talked about to get things done, and so they were trying to static fire test the Falcon One rocket for the first time. So this was at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, and they had the single they had the rocket with a single engine on the test stand. And it's, it's held down, but you basically fire it before you launch it to make sure everything works. Um, and you do that before you put a payload on it so that the payload is protected. Um, and they were trying, you know, anytime you put new hardware on the stand, there's always problems. There's always, these are complex systems and you've got to find all the bugs. And so they had tried to static fire test it three times um, on one day. And then um, they, they ran out of liquid oxygen which is one of the two propellants used um, in the Merlin engine. And what had happened was their last fuel truck had got turned around in Los Angeles. Um, this was in May of, of 2005 and, and didn't make it up to Vandenberg. And so they, they ran out of locks. Um, and the, in his phone call that night to the launch director, a guy named Tim Buzza, must said, if you, know, if you guys ever run out of locks again... You probably should explain what locks are. Locks, if you ever run out of liquid oxygen again... So locks, everyone's fired. Um, and he would do that. He would do that at other times too, where basically said, if this ever happens again, you know, everyone's fired. Um, and would he have fired everyone? I, I don't know. But I mean, he, he, he's, he, he's unique in his motivation that he has these inspirational goals and he has, he's very effective at communicating them and motivating his team. But there's also a certain amount of fear, right? Because he is an intimidating and demanding person. And if you screw up, you know, good luck to you. The way, um, the way um, a machinist put it to me um, was, you know, you don't ever lie to Elon, right? You don't steal from Elon. And if you tell Elon you can do something, you better fucking get it done. Because otherwise you're in... In, in big trouble. So, I mean, that, that's, that's sort of the key things like, like tell the truth and don't, and, and, and do what you say you're going to do. Yes. Very hard taskmaster. So now I'd like to move on to some of the, the drama stories, the milestones and the team members. In the early days, SpaceX was forced to find its own launch pad for Falcon 1 on a tiny Pacific island. And launch director, you write, Anne Chinnery said, I had caught that SpaceX bug that said anything is possible. It didn't occur to me what a challenge it would be. Uh, Eric, can you tell us about that immense challenge and also the near mutiny that it caused? Right. So if you can imagine, you know, they, they were initially planning to launch from Vandenberg Air Force Base, which is a couple hours north of Los Angeles. And that's pretty simple, right? You put your rocket on the back of a flatbed truck, you ship it up there, and you put it vertical, and you've got everything you need there. To make it go, your launch team can go home at night or on the weekends and get rest. And it's, it's logistically, it's pretty doable. The problem is in, in 2005, they ran into red tape there. And it basically became clear that the U.S. Air Force was not going to let them launch for at least six months. And Musk was not getting paid by anyone to build the rocket. Time was money. And so he made the decision that they were going to have to find a launch site elsewhere. And they ended up at Quadrillion Atoll which is really far away. So if you were to take off in an airplane from Los Angeles and fly to Hawaii and then fly that same distance further west from Hawaii, then you end up in Kwajalein. Um, it's about you know 4,000 miles from the mainland United States. And imagine trying to launch a rocket from an island about the size of four city blocks with no consumables, no power, and anything. It's literally just a tiny tropical island in this atoll in the Pacific. So they had to ship everything across the ocean or fly it in, in army transports from Los Angeles to Hawaii and then to Kwajalein. And they took a little boat from Kwajalein over to Omelec Island where they launched from. So we were talking about liquid oxygen or locks a few minutes ago. You know, it's one thing to truck it from, you know, a uh, plant in, in a chemical plant in, in Los Angeles up to Vandenberg. It's another thing to ship it. You know, it takes four weeks to go across the Pacific. 
to get to uh, Omelette Island. And so you can imagine in the hot tropical sun, liquid oxygen, which is several hundred degrees below zero, some of that's going to boil off. So they, they had to plan weeks and months ahead on all the consumables. They had to bring everything out there that they were going to need. And it was just, it was a demanding environment because getting home was a flight from Kwajalein to Honolulu, spending a night there and then flying to LA. So it was like a day, day and a half trip one way. Um, and so the mutiny was was in the run-up to the first launch attempt. So they first launched the Falcon 1 in March of 2006, so less than four years after SpaceX was founded. Pretty remarkable time. He had pushed this team relentlessly hard. Um, and, you know, they were they were working seven days a week, you know, every waking hour to, to get the Falcon 1 rocket ready on Omelak. And the people, people on the island were taking basically the way it worked is that there were engineers and technicians on Omelak working on the rocket and then 20 miles away on Kwajalein a little bit bigger island where the army base was there was another team of more senior engineers who were relaying instructions and then back in California typically is where Musk was with other engineers and so they California the headquarters would relay instructions to Kwajalein and Kwajalein had headsets and they would talk to people on Omelak and so the the, the workers on Omelak just kind of got frustrated because it felt like they were just, you know, shit rolls downhill and it was all piling up on them. Um, and, and one day it's the, the, we talked about logistics were difficult. Just, they ran out of food and more importantly for some of them, they ran out of cigarettes. And so after, after they just gotten reamed about not using enough paperwork to document what they were doing, um, they just said, look, we're, we're done. We're not, you know, until we get some food and cigarettes out here, we're not, you know, we're not going to work anymore. And so this was a bit of a mutiny. And so the launch director on Quadrant at the time, a guy named Tim Buzza, decided that he was going to, you know, this was pretty serious and he better address it. So he, he got with one of the uh, the helicopter pilots. There were former Army guys who were flying Vietnam-era Hueys. It was the fastest way to get between islands and Quadrant. And, and they went out there with some trays of chicken wings and some packs of cigarettes and and the pilot, when he got over to Omelette, wouldn't land. And the excuse that he used was that there was they were building a launch tower. It just wasn't safe for him to build a launch tower. But but really, the landing area for the helicopter was 100 yards away. So that was not really the real reason. The way the real reason is it was explained to me by by some of the people who were on the island is that they it was like a scene from Lord of the Flies. You know, they were hungry, they were dirty. They were begrimed and, and sort of they saw the helicopter and they all kind of rushed the pads. The helicopter never even sat down. It, they just sort of <laughs> pushed the food and cigarettes out and the pilot took off. Um, but that, that was then that was the end of the mutiny. It only lasted a few hours, but it gives a sense of like just how odd it is to be in this remote environment um, and to just be pushed to the bleeding edge of, of sort of the human capacity. Yes, and and uh, how desperate they must have been risking the wrath of Elon Musk. Yeah, it's a great story, very well told in the book. Um, so I don't think it's a spoiler to say there were three um, unsuccessful launches of Falcon 1 on that island. And a lot of the team thought, that's it, we're done, you know, the money's running out. But Musk gave the team just six weeks to try one last time. And you tell the story of how they transported that Falcon 1 rocket across the Pacific in a C-17 aircraft. All went well until they started descending towards Hawaii and heard loud, terrible popping sounds. Can you pick up the story from there, Eric? Yeah, so they had they had six weeks, and typically they would ship it across the Pacific on a barge, but they didn't have time, and so they arranged, paid about half a million dollars to get a C-17 transport, um, loaded it up in L.A., and, and were flying it to Hawaii for the first leg of the trip. And as they went up, the rocket you know, was fine. It was under pressure, and then that's okay. A rocket likes to have a higher internal pressure than, than the surrounding area. The problem is when the C-17 started descending, the rocket could not pressurize. And so like the pressure inside the rocket was less than that of the, the aircraft that it was, that it was riding in. And that's terrible. Like a rocket is never supposed to have negative pressure. And so 
to save money, about 20 of the SpaceX technicians and engineers had ridden along. And so if you can imagine, there's this first stage of a rocket laid out in this C-17 hangar um, or, or transport payload area. And then they're sort of sitting along the sides of the aircraft, their feet kicked up on the transportation cradle, literally having the time of their life, you know, playing guitars and just, you know, how often do you get to ride in a C-17 with a rocket? Probably never. Um, but here they were doing it. And, and then all of a sudden, the, the, the Falcon 1, as you say, sort of starts popping and starts imploding like a, like a beer can or a giant is crushing a beer can. And this, this is their last hardware. The company has no more money. This, they have no more pieces of the Falcon 1 rocket. The previous three attempts have failed. You know, if they don't get this one into orbit and fast, it's game over and everyone knows it. Okay, so they're on the aircraft, they're descending into Hawaii, and it's pandemonium in the in the hangar and the payload area. And one of the one of the engineers goes back up in the cockpit and sort of begs the pilots to, to climb again um, because they're trying to get the pressure lower inside the, the, the aircraft so that um, you know so that the rocket starts stops crumpling. Um, and the pilot says, "Okay, we do. We've only got about thirty minutes of fuel, so we can climb for about ten minutes, and then we've got to continue our descent." And and so that that helps, but. What they really need to do, especially as the rocket keeps going down, as the aircraft keeps going down into Hawaii, is open a big valve that will equalize the pressure between the fuel tanks and the, the aircraft ambient pressure. And it falls to Zach Dunn, who's this young engineer who's responsible for the propulsion tank, to do it. And he, so he's got to climb into the inner stage, which is the area between the first and second stages of the rocket. It's dark in there, and there's these sharp components. And it's just, you know, he's got, if he doesn't open this, the rocket is completely destroyed. Um, but he could also be crushed as he's crawling in there. It's, it's dark, it's loud, it's pinging, and he's got a single wrench to open this. Um, that's the only tool they could find on the aircraft to open that valve. And so, you know, he manages to crawl in there. And, and open the valve and he hears this loud whoosh as the, as the air starts going back into the rocket and the pressures are equalizing. And it's a, it's, he's saved the rocket, so to speak, but no one knows like what kind of damage has been done because it's not just like straight up fuel tank and it's just empty. There's like delicate slosh baffles inside. And so, you know, all of this intricate hardware that they spent months building, you know, is damaged if not destroyed and and yeah they've got to go to Omelec and, and see what they can do about it yeah it's such a great story so dramatic so of course Elon Musk didn't do all this on his own I want to talk now about some of the key members of his team Gwyn Shotwell is now president of SpaceX and you describe her as simpatico with Musk what would you say is her biggest contribution to the SpaceX mission so far Right. So Elon founded SpaceX and he had funding in $100 million and he had vision. His vision was to ultimately build a rocket company capable of settling Mars um, with humans. Um, and he had some engineering know-how. I mean, he had read a lot of books on building rockets and talked to a lot of people and certainly had some good knowledge. Um, what he didn't have was an understanding of the aerospace business or of working with government customers. You know, he'd never had to deal with NASA bureaucracy like that, let alone the Air Force um, or the National Reconnaissance Office. And all of these play a key role in the success of launch companies because, yeah, you can launch some commercial satellites, but the real money is in government business and in launching science satellites for NASA and, and communications and spy satellites for the U.S. military. And so she brought a knowledge of that industry and also a much more polished touch, right? Musk is pretty abrasive at times, kind of awkward and doesn't have a lot of time, you know, as we said, for small talk, whereas Shotwell is much, much smoother. She's a former high school cheerleader, um, you know, and, and everyone in the space industry, you know, today loves her um, because she's very approachable, very funny. But, you know, outwardly, they're very different. Um, but inwardly, like, she went to work for Musk because she believed that the space industry was ripe for disruption as well. 
and she saw in him, you know, sort of the agent of change who could make that happen and, and hired on and, and basically has given herself for the last 20 years to help him carry out that mission. And she's been instrumental in, in working with the, the, military, the Department of Defense, NASA, and commercial customers. And, you know, ultimately she scored the two big NASA contracts that ultimately saved SpaceX and put it on the trajectory it's been on for the last decade. That's a remarkable achievement. Yes, and I was delighted as a Scot to hear about Gwyn's special lucky charm. I understand she was in my hometown of Glasgow when uh, the first successful launch of Falcon 1 happened. Tell us about her, her quirky habit that she developed after that exciting moment. Yes, yeah, so she, she told me that, that she was at a big space conference, IAC, in um, and it was just, it happened to be in, in, in Scotland, in Glasgow, Scotland in 2008. Um, and so on September 28th, 2008, she was staying in a hotel room, ha- literally half the way around the world from Kwajalein as they were launching their fourth rocket. Um, and so she was watching it and just, you know, was, was thrilled about what had happened and, and, She's superstitious, like a lot of people in the, the space industry. And so every launch since, she's taken out a ballpoint pen and write, Scott, wrote Scotland on a piece of paper and, and put it in her shoes so she could say that she's over Scotland or, you know, standing in Scotland. Um, and they've had a pretty remarkable record of success since those first three failures. Um, so, you know, she, she, had, she, had, she had a ball because she told me, like, the very next day, she was scheduled to brief the customers that had been on the third flight of the Falcon 1 that had failed um, and just sort of had this sad meeting, you know, and she said, screw it. I'm not going to talk about the failure. <laughs> talk about the success we just had. So, yeah, that's, she's she's something else. Yes, I, I just love that story. That's great. Uh, so another key part of the team was Tom Muller. He was VP of Propulsion, and he designed the in-house rocket engines, the Merlin 1D, the original Raptor. Talk about his key contributions and how he and Elon navigated this stressful and challenging terrain of three major uh, failures early on. Yeah, so Tom Muller had worked in the the space industry for about a decade, um, had come to Los Angeles from Idaho and, and really had a brilliant mind for, for building rocket engines. Um, and he told me he saw in Musk, um, because it was, you know, these, for these early hires, especially what Musk did was hire three or four people in their 30s and 40s, the Mullers, Tim Buzza, Glenn Shotwell, Hans Koenigsmann, and Chris Thompson um, to be the vice presidents. And then below them had a, just a bunch of really young people out of college, brilliant people. Um, And so, you know, it was difficult to get these vice presidents to come on board. You know, Musk had no reputation in the space industry, um, no reason to think he would be successful. And these people all had, you know, well-paying jobs and made good careers. And Mueller said that, you know, he thought about, he worked for TRW. Um, at the time, which was later bought by Northrop Grumman. Um, he told me that he had seen a lot of people with good ideas, but no money, and a lot of people with no money but good ideas. And Musk was the first person he saw that really had a pretty good idea for starting out the Falcon 1 rocket design and had the money, the wherewithal to carry it out. And so he, that's why he joined the company. And, 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 and they worked pretty well together up until the first failure. So in March of 2006, um, the rocket took off for 30 seconds and then crashed back into Omelak Island. And this was because of a problem with the engine. The, the, the bolt on the, the Merlin engine had been corroded because of salt spray. Um, they'd left it out on the island too long, exposed in the tropical environment. And, uh, and Muller said between flight one and flight two, which was about a year, he was, you know, he was on, he was in deep shit with Elon because his engine had screwed up and so he said their relationship was not good he told me this hilarious anecdote so like um after that first flight uh he musk musk bought out a zero g flight um so this is a 737 727 that goes out flies parabolic arcs and and does about 20 of them so you end up getting about 20 seconds of weightlessness and about 20 seconds of about 1.8 g's nasa has one too it's called the vomit comet I've ridden on it. It's a tremendous experience. 
<laughs> Did you vomit? No, I didn't. They give you they give you an anti they give you an antiemetic that that helps out a lot. Um, so they they he, he invite you know this was room for about thirty people and Muller's the vice president of propulsion, right? He's probably the most important engineer at the company outside of Musk. And he's like, there are a lot of people junior to me that got on the that got our ticket, but I didn't get to go. Um, and <laughs> he's like, he's like, it really depended on the grade you got for the first launch, and I obviously he got a bad grade. Um, but then on the second flight of the Falcon 1, which also didn't reach orbit, but the first stage performed great, like a champ, the Merlin engine. So it was like Tom said, you know, seconds after that first stage burn completed, he and Elon hugged it out and they were, and they were good again. Um, so, you know, it, working with Musk is a challenge. A way another engineer described to me, Tim Buzza, who was the vice president of launch, you know, you had to be willing to be molded by Musk. You had to be willing to sort of adapt to his demanding environment. But in some ways that was liberating because, you know, you got to do things not by a committee, right? Not like by having endless meetings. So they'd all work, they all come from Boeing um, or TRW or, or big companies that, you know, where things move slowly. And you know, here they got to move fast, try ideas, you know, they got to fail and figure things out and move forward. And for an engineer, it's like being a kid in a candy store. And so you had to be willing to take the good with the bad with Musk. And, you know, they were ultimately able to do it. Um, now, Muller and Buzza and Chris Thompson all ended up leaving after about a decade or a little bit more at the company just because ultimately they, they got burned out in it. But they all look back on it with tremendous fondness. Yes, yes, I can imagine. Yes. Um, so I just wanted to let our audience know that we're at the 30 minute mark and we're going to be moving to audience questions in about 15 minutes. So if you have any burning questions, please leave them in the chat. And just to continue with, you know, the drama, uh, high-risk lawsuits were part of SpaceX's success. Can you talk, Eric, about why they mattered and the controversy they created? Right. So, so Musk uh, acts on a pretty simple premise. You know, he's happy to kind of go along his own his own speed until things get in the way, or if he thinks he's being treated unfairly. And if he thinks he's being treated unfairly, his reaction is to just fight back. I mean, you can see that on Twitter anytime he's engaging with someone who says something he doesn't like or thinks is unfair. Um, you know, he did it recently with the FAA and, and his Starship test program. Um, and he, he did the same thing back at the beginning of SpaceX, you know, before they launched their first rocket, he'd sued all of his major competitors, Boeing, Lockheed, and Northrop protested a major NASA contract and, and, and sued the, the Department of Defense. I mean, these are his biggest competitors and most important customers. And he's, <laughs> he's never even launched a rocket, but he's, you know, he's taking them all on right out of the gate. Um, so he's, he's very aggressive in that sense. Yeah. Yes. And are there any other dramatic stories that stand out for you or, or characters that we should, we should um, discuss? Um, I, boy, it's hard for me to pick them all because there are about a dozen in that I've chose to focus on, and I love them all. You know, Tim Buzza <clears throat> told me some of the best stories that 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 made it in the book. And as I say, he was the launch director; he'd been at Boeing and and led up their operations for engine testing and then launching Quadrilene. <laughs> he just told me one story that I just crack up every time I think about it. So. They in, in the fall and winter of 2005, they were trying to set up their first, their launch site in Quadrilene, and they were, of course, rushing to do it. And, you know, they, they tried to ship everything they could across during the 28-day voyage, but it, it got to the point where you just needed things from the mainland more quickly. And so the Army had a designation, and I'm sorry, I've got it in the book, it's like 999 or something like that, but basically, you know... You, when you're asking for something to be shipped on an army transport, you have to designate it with a priority code. And there's certain low priority. There's a, a sort of a general priority for, for family packages and things like that. And then there's a high priority, like 
like I said, it's nine, nine, nine or something. And, and this is basically reserved for critical war material. Like, you know, you're, <laughs> you're on the front lines or your hospital, you, you got to have this stuff. Um, and he said they, they kind of cozied up to the, the army logistics agent in Kwajalein and just started using 999 on everything they needed that fall. And <laughs> they were they were they were building up to their first launch attempt on December 23rd, just a couple of days before Christmas. And so he said that last logistics flight before Christmas, just a couple of days before Christmas, was just all SpaceX stuff. And he said <laughs> so he basically bumped all of the Christmas trees, the Christmas presents, the Christmas hams for the for the for the fam, army families that were on the Kwajalein army base, and he said for months after that, the army moms and like the local PX and stores on the base would just give them the dirtiest looks because they knew they knew what SpaceX had done to them for the Christmas of 2005. So it's just you know it was it was, it was sort of talking to people like him who were willing to just tell all the good stories and, and being able to put that down in a book that was just made it such a fun project to work on. Yes, it just shows how many people have been impacted way beyond the SpaceX team. A lot of people <laughs> suffered and sacrificed. Yes, and we didn't even get into divorces and family disruption. Anyway, I'd, like, I'd now like to focus on SpaceX and Elon Musk's lessons for entrepreneurs. As a leader, Musk cultivated an anything is possible mindset. And a recurring question from Musk was, what would it take? Can you give us some examples of this mindset? Yeah, so, you know, kind of returning to the issue of, of liquid oxygen we talked about, you know, they, they kept having problems of supplying it in Kwajalein. And so um, the engineers discovered that there was this machine that could take warm tropical air, kind of ingest it and pull the oxygen out of it and liquefy it. And, well, this seemed like a great idea because you could you know, have a magical machine um, and make locks 24-7. And so, you know, it silent scene elon says sure let's order it let's see if it works and so they got it they shipped it out there and it was basically filled up half of the sea van and it was this you know this contraption that's kind of this machine with these pipes and smoke coming out of it and made all these popping noises and it it ended up making you know a few dozen gallons a day but nothing (laughs) nothing like they needed but you know he was you know he was willing to, you know, cognizant of the fact that he was asking the nearly impossible, he was willing to entertain, you know, whatever solutions it would take to, to do it. And, and like I said earlier, you know, what he didn't want to hear is this is the way it's always been done in the industry. And so this is the way we ought to do it. No, no, no. He wanted you to think, well, how could we do it better? How could we do it faster? And if it, if it was a crazy solution, he would entertain that solution. Um, which, you know, again, speaks to this duality of like asking the impossible, but then empowering his people to have a chance of doing the impossible. Yes, yes. Very effective, obviously. So Musk would urge his team to use this iterative rather than a linear approach and almost a mantra of move fast, build things and break things. Why did this fail fast uh, strategy eventually succeed? And was that, would you say that's the key to kind of beating the establishment? Yeah, I mean, along with the vertical integration that we talked about earlier of trying to break your dependence upon the aerospace, aerospace supply chain, you know, he had a different way of going about it. The, the, traditionally in, in space, you know, if NASA has a contractor build a system or a rocket, you know, they don't want it to fail. They don't want, they want tests to be perfect and Okay, that means that the, it's going to take a long time to design because you've got to you've got to simulate every possible scenario in which the rocket could fail, and then build a component or a widget to address that issue. So that by the time you get to your first test, years and years and years after coming up with the idea, the rocket works. Now it may be heavy, it may be years late, it may be millions or billions of dollars over budget, but it hasn't failed. Um, and and must thought was, well, you know, if we can get away with with steel walls on the tank that are only three millimeters 
instead of six millimeters, we saved a ton of mass. And you could simulate that to death, but the acid test is to just build it and test it or fly it and see what happens. And it may blow up. And, you know, he famously, you know, told his employees more than a decade ago, you know, failure is an option at SpaceX. Like, we can be seen to fail, and that's okay, because it's going to get us to our goal faster. And it did it did bite him in the butt sometimes. On that second launch of the Falcon 1, it was taking a risk on, on upper stage, an upper stage issue um, that that they decided they had the margin to fly with and never had really been able to completely simulate it. And they went ahead anyway, and, and that, that ultimately caused the launch to fail. But he was willing to take that risk to get a rocket developed faster. And, you know, they went from nothing to having a, a rocket on the launch pad in three and a half years and reached orbit a couple of years later. And that that was a speed for a new rocket that, you know, was, was really unprecedented. And it was because he had this this fly, test, fail, learn, fix, and then fly again mentality. Yeah, it really is remarkable. And the other aspect which is interesting for entrepreneurs is Elon was simultaneously, or it still is, running SpaceX and Tesla through some very challenging times around 2008. How did he apply lessons from each um, strategies, you know, and, and adopt new strategies for each company from the learning? I mean, it is insane to think that you know, he not only founded one transformative company, he founded two and, and not only guided them from like the founder's mentality, right? SpaceX was going to settle Mars. Tesla was going to make electric cars cool. Um, and, and sort of from the, from the ground up built these companies, but then now it, through the maturing process, he's remained like, as the leader of both of those companies. I mean, it's almost always you go through this, you go through the situation of where, you know, your founder has a vision and then someone comes in and has to be like the adult in the room, the CEO. No, that's not been the case for, for, for Musk. And it's, it's worked out. Um, in terms of a lesson learned, it's interesting. And I, I would, I would use an example of Starship. Um, he's got this factory beneath tents in South Texas where they're building the, the Mars vehicle. Um, for Starship. And he described it when I visited him last year to talk about this, he described it as building the machine to build the machine. And this is a lesson he'd learned two years earlier when he'd gone through production hell with Tesla. Um, and, and it was interesting to see him apply the similar logic to, to optimizing each stage of production of a Tesla to similarly optimizing each stage of, of, building Starship. And so he's got this revolutionary rocket, like the, the space industry has never seen anything like this before. And you'd think he'd be entirely focused on the design of Starship, but no, at that point he was designed, focused on building the machine to build the machine. Like how do you optimize a factory to build Starships? And so he definitely took lessons learned from SpaceX and put them to Tesla and similarly from Tesla to SpaceX. It's, it's how he can keep it straight in his head you know, it's is pretty boggling. Yes, I, it really is. It, it's quite mind-boggling. Okay, so we have some questions from the audience. Uh, what do you think are Elon Musk's three biggest attributes and three biggest weaknesses? So his, his three biggest strengths are, one, I would say he is extremely intelligent. Um, I had the, the pleasure to interview Stephen Hawking on several occasions. So I've, I've interviewed smart people and Musk is every bit as much in that stratosphere. So he has, he's very strong. Um, he's thinking on a different plane, certainly than, than, than someone like myself, who's, you know, not stupid, but not brilliant. Um, and he, he, he's, he works extremely hard. Um, you know, he's, he's putting in, literally 16 to 20 hour days um, to manage SpaceX, Tesla, and so their interests um, and, you know, creating memes as well, I suppose, during that time. And then, and then thirdly, I think most importantly, he just has this incredible drive that he wakes up every day trying to think about how he can go faster or do things more quickly um, or change the way. I mean, it's just, 
he has this energy where he drives himself and those people around him to move faster. Um, and it's incredible to be around, but it's also, I found it extraordinarily draining trying to keep up with that um, because it, it never really turns off. And I think it's that drive that probably is most important, his most important attribute in terms of just being able to move through all of the inertia in this world to get SpaceX and Tesla to the point where they are and sort of to not be happy with it where they are and continue pushing, you know, to where Tesla becomes bigger and bigger and to where SpaceX actually achieves its ambitions. What are his weaknesses? Um, I mean, you know, he can be not nice to his people, right? Um, if you work for SpaceX and all of a sudden you're less useful than you were, then, you know, he's, he's ready to move on. Like, like it was, it was nice while it lasted, but it's over. Um, and so don't want to say he doesn't have empathy because he does have empathy, but he doesn't always display that display empathy, I would say. Um, you know, his, his habits on Twitter are self-destructive. Um, I know why he uses it. It's because he enjoys it. Um, it's an outlet for him and it's an incredibly effective marketing for both SpaceX and Tesla. And in the space community, you know, he, he, he communicates great details about the Starship development program that we can't get anywhere else. That is literally like an inside view of what's happening, but he's also, you know, he also says mean things to people and nasty things to people. It's gotten him in trouble. It seems to me like he's doing less of that now. Um, but, but that's not, that, that behavior is obviously not helpful. Um, let's see a third thing. Um, I mean, he, you know, he, he's, he's not politically correct. And I, and I mean, and that's just, that's just, that's just the way he is. And I think that that's how he moves fast and gets things done is, is by not worrying about that kind of stuff. But I think that in, in some people's minds that hurts him as well. Got it. Okay, we have another audience uh, question, and they want to know about reactions to your book so far. Um, are people happy with how events and stories were portrayed? Yeah, so like, um, go check out the Amazon reviews of Lift Talk. They're, they're shockingly nice. Um, I mean, I when I finished the book, I was very happy with how the story turned out, because I felt like I had talked to everyone I wanted to talk to. I felt like just the narrative, the story of the Falcon 1 was more rich than I had even imagined. And I felt like I was able to tell like a really nice arc um, that explained where SpaceX had come from and how, you know, sort of setting the stage for why they had become such a successful transformative rocket company. Um, but it's really nice to see people react to that. Um, I'm not sure Elon is a huge fan of the book because the approach I took was, was it's obviously his company and he's the spine of the book, but it's very much the story of SpaceX and not Elon Musk's SpaceX. So it, it, it brings forth a lot of characters who worked at the company during the early years. And so Elon had the vision and he was there working alongside them, but there were other people who, who did a lot of hard work and blood, sweat, and tears to make that rocket happen. So I told the story of the Falcon 1 through their eyes as well. So um, it's, 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 it's people who are still at SpaceX, and it's people who left SpaceX, some on great terms, some on not so great terms. So it's, it's, like, a, it's like a holistic story. And, and by and large, all the early vice presidents have given me great feedback. When um, Hans Koningsman, Tom Muller, Chris Thompson, Tim Buzza, they're all thrilled with the book and they were all eager to tell the story. Um, and so they all talked frankly in a way that they really had never done before. Great. Well, you can't please all the people. <laughs> okay. So another audience question, when you first met Elon Musk, what was your first impression of him? Did anything surprise you? And I would add to that um, in your book, you describe you had a kind of intimate family time with him and his three boys. Can you talk about that too? Yeah, so I would just say I had a, you know, he threw me a little off kilter the first time I met him. It was the day before the Falcon Heavy launch in 2018. 
and had arranged it so that I was going to interview him about a half a mile from the rocket with it in the background. And he kind of rolls up in this, this black SUV and gets out. And, and now we're looking at the world's largest rocket, never had launched before. And the very first thing he says to me after we sort of say hello is, it looks a little small, doesn't it? And I had no idea how to take that because no, it didn't look small at all. It was the it was this huge rocket, right? Um, and I was trying to think, like, on my feet, is he like being self-deprecating, um, kind of making a joke, or is he being serious? And later I realized, no, he was being serious because um, even back then, like, his mind was kind of had already turned his focus towards Starship, and Starship does dwarf the Falcon Heavy rocket. So, so when he was saying it looks a little small, he was thinking about it with Starship. Anyway, that threw me that threw me very much off my stride for a few seconds as I as I struggled with that. Um, I did spend a little bit of time around him and his three sons, um, um, more than half a day in, in 2019, um, and it was really it was really nice to see him because um, he was bringing the three boys with him to South Texas for the weekend. And they brought their dog, um, a little Havanese named Marvin the Martian. And so I got to see Elon the dad, Elon the dog parent. And he was like a dad. I mean, he acted like a dad. It was like, it was, you know, he has this very much of a Tony Stark, larger than life persona, international billionaire, you know. But in that setting, he was just sort of their dad. And it was, it was nice to sort of see that side of him. Yeah, so it's wonderful you experienced that. Uh, we have a question from Catherine at Leopard Imaging, and she says, Eric, uh, you recently published an article about Russia turning away from NASA and working with China. What other geopolitical changes do you anticipate? Ooh, um, so the space industry is changing. You know, it started out as a Cold War where it was a geopolitical struggle between the United States and the Soviet Union to show who could do better things in space. Um, for the last two or three decades, it's been more of cooperation between the United States and Russia, um, primarily through the International Space Station. But we're entering now, you know, there's a lot of talk about a multipolar world. And I think it's the same thing in space. You're going to have a strength of China, who is very much emerging as a power in space. Um, both economic and military and exploration. And then Russia, I see them sort of gravitating from working with the United States and, and they're really fading as a power. They're not investing in their space program. They have a tremendous legacy. Um, but I, I see them sort of going along with China rather than going along with the United States. And then you've got NASA, which is in this difficult position because on the one hand, they're sort of leading the free world in exploration, but their plans have changed from the moon to Mars, to the moon again. It now seems like we've got a pretty good plan with the Artemis program, and there will be sort of we'll be able to lead, you know, back to the, the moon with Japan, Europe, China, and some other countries like perhaps Brazil or, or the Middle East. But then there's this, this, this fourth power, and that's really the commercial space sector. Um, because, because SpaceX and other companies following behind have, have taken that first critical step toward lowering the cost of launch. And so you can get into space for a much lower cost now than you could 10 years ago. You can do so in a much more timely fashion. You don't have to wait two or three years. If you have an idea, you can maybe get there in six months. And from a business standpoint, that really means you can try more things. So I think, you know, in addition to... China and the United States, sort of these, these major international programs, the commercial space is definitely going to become a player and we're going to see a lot more activity. And we're already seeing that with the Starlink internet program that SpaceX is doing, this, this low Earth orbit constellation of thousands of satellites to deliver broadband internet around the world. You know, OneWeb is doing that. Jeff Bezos is doing that with Project Kuiper um, and Telesat's planning something, China's planning it. But but you know, we're seeing clashes between SpaceX and astronomers, right? It's it's polluting the night sky. You're seeing clashes between SpaceX and NASA and 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 
the UN because of this potential for increased um, collisions between satellites. I saw a study recently where about the half of the potential collisions in, in low Earth orbit now are due to SpaceX satellites because they've put so many up there and it's just going to increase. And so, you know, we're not going to just have this tension between China or Russia or the United States in space, but you're going to have tension between commercial actors and and those geopolitical actors. And I don't know how it's all going to shake out, but we've come a long way since the Cold War and the U.S. and Soviet Union. I was going to give you lots of material to write about, Eric, that's for sure. It's just- Super fascinating time Ex- to be thinking about. Exciting time for you. So uh, we've time for just one last question. Elon once told me, I want to die on Mars, just not on impact, in his typical uh, humorous way. Uh, knowing what you know um, of Elon, how he works and how he drives his team, will he achieve his dream? And what milestones do you expect to see from SpaceX and its Starship and Starlink projects in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, so, I mean, when he founded SpaceX and started talking about how, you know, he was going to settle Mars, and that was like the purpose of the company, it was, that was just insane in the context of the era. I remember in 2016, he did his first real presentation on his Mars ambitions. It was at the IAC meeting in Guadalajara, Mexico. And even that was that was a little less than five years ago. And, and even then, it seemed beyond audacious to me. Um, but to see what they've done since then with the Falcon 9, Falcon Heavy, and now the Starship rocket leads me to believe that it might just be possible. So he's, you know, almost 50 years old. He's moving as fast as he can. How long he'll be able to keep up this pace, I, I don't know. I mean, if the pressures of 2008 didn't break him when Tesla and SpaceX were both on the brink of failure and he was getting a divorce, you know, if he could manage that and, and come through it, you know, I think, you know, who knows how long he can keep going. But 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 the reason he moves so fast and, like, it has this drive, I think, is because he knows he has a finite amount of time to make this happen in his lifetime. Um, so I'm going to bet that, that he does make it. I don't know if he ever goes to Mars, but I think SpaceX will launch humans to Mars in his lifetime. And we may even see the foundations of a settlement. Um, I think people will die on impact with Mars. It's just an extremely dangerous thing. And, and the people going there will have to accept some kind of risk that NASA would never accept that risk, but potentially a private company could get away with. I don't know. There's lots of thorny issues like that 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 they're going to have to work through um, in the coming years. Um, In terms of achievements, within five to 10 years, I think Starlink will be a a big commercial success. I mean, I think by next year, you'll be able to get your internet from Starlink if you want. Um, and, And I think that'll be really popular among space cadets because there's a lot of people out there who, who love what SpaceX is doing but have no way to directly support the company. Well, with Starlink, you can ditch Comcast and pay the same or maybe a little bit more and get internet. And why wouldn't you do that if you could fly the SpaceX logo on the side of your house or apartment or whatever? Um, and I think Starship, they'll reach orbital flight. I think they may even fly humans around the moon within five to seven years. And I think if NASA goes back to the moon, it'll be on SpaceX rockets. I mean, it's just, you know, NASA spent 10 years and more than $20 billion building a rocket that is is totally obsolete compared to Starship. And so I think ultimately that rocket, the space launch system will get scrapped and, and SpaceX will build a transportation system. But if they're really going to go where they want to go, they're going to have to do it with NASA. Um, for, for regulatory reasons, for technology reasons, like learning to live in space for long periods of time, the whole psychology of that, I mean, long duration space travel, it's pretty serious stuff. Um, and, and NASA has a lot of experience in that. So I think, you know, they've been great partners for the last 12 to 14 years. And I just think that's going to continue. Excellent. Great insights, Eric. And will there be a sequel from you? We'll have to see. You know, I'm enjoying I'm enjoying having liftoff out there and sharing it with the world. And, and we'll see if there's another chapter to be written about SpaceX or something else. Yes, well, we'll be we'll be following closely. I think you've done a remarkable job telling this uh, very intimate story of the the scrappy first years. I'd like to thank you, Eric, for um, all your insights and all your wonderful stories. 
Um, Eric is the author of Liftoff, Elon Musk, and the Desperate Early Days that Launched SpaceX. We encourage you to pick up a copy of Eric's new book at your local bookstore. And if you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club, please visit commonwealthclub.org. I'm Alison Van Diggelen. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay well and hope to see you next time. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.